Ooh. Ooh. You are back there turning the knobs up, trying to get me to say something, weren't you? Um, first of all, you know, uh, last night uh, our basketball team fairly well blew away, blew away an awfully good Point Loma team. And uh, we, tomorrow night, uh, our basketball team plays uh, uh, the, uh, Christian Heritage. Now, Christian Heritage only has to win one game to have a good year. And, uh, you know, uh, you need to be here. You know, I'm all for uh, priorities, educational and spiritual priorities, and I, I don't know if I can give you a verse for this, but something inside of me tells me that if you're not here for our basketball games, your, your priorities are all, all mixed up, if you want to know the truth. Uh, you need to be here. Tomorrow night, uh, women play tonight, I believe, and then tomorrow night, the... Uh, the uh, uh, the men's team, so uh, against against uh, Christian Heritage. Then I want to mention uh, Dave Maddox asked me. He actually was on for today and then had to be away, and so he asked me to fill in. And I was happy for the opportunity just to uh, say something to the student body. I am going to be gone this semester. I think most of you are familiar with that. Uh, about uh, oh, an embarrassingly large number of years ago, my uh, I, I, I moved my family from Minnesota to Dallas to begin a uh, doctoral program. And uh, as we stand here, as I stand here, you sit there. I'm not done with that doctoral program. And um, I, I really need to finish it. I need to write a dissertation. And so I asked for a sabbatical, that is, just to uh, be relieved of teaching duties. And my dear friend and, and cherished boss, John Stead, uh, consented to do it. And I just wanted to say publicly, number one, I'll, I'll, I'll miss being on campus. I'm going to move off campus here next week and uh, give myself to... Uh, writing a dissertation. Appreciate your prayers when you think of me. And, uh, but I want to say thank you to, uh, to those who have made it possible, my chairman, Tom Halstead, and my colleagues in the Bible department who are picking up slack for me, and then three gentlemen who are teaching for me. Now, those of you who are in my classes, I want you to support those men. Uh, I've asked them to, uh, to fill for me this semester, and they've consented to do it, Pete Wise and uh, Pete Slusher and... and uh, Dave Haig. So some of you have had the courses already, and they're they're going to do a marvelous job. But really, get behind them. Well, now with all that out of the out of the way, uh, it's gone. The uh, it's all right. It's all right. The uh, the focus for the uh, early part of the semester is on the distinctives that we are anxious to insinuate into your life as you are here, as a student and as a growing believer at the Master's College. And Dave asked me to deal with integrity, and it's a broad subject. I'd like you to take your Bibles. I'm going to jump you around a little bit here this morning in the Scriptures. But take your Bibles and go to this 32nd Psalm. I have the, um, the authorized version before me, of course. If you have some less authorized version, that'll do. But uh, no, it'll work. Integrity is certainly a broad subject, but it seems to me that at its very base, uh, the thing which destroys my integrity and your integrity, the thing which robs us of integrity, is sin which we tolerate in our lives. And I'd like to focus on that this morning, and i, I got to tell you that it's not a happy message. It's not a message I enjoy uh, focusing on, but I think it's terribly, terribly important. You have in the 32nd Psalm, by the way, the 32nd Psalm is a sister psalm to Psalm 51. Now, you know Psalm 51 
as the marvelous psalm of confession and repentance, penitent psalm, penitential psalm, which David penned after his discovery, uh, the discovery of his sin with Bathsheba and against Uriah and against God. Psalm 32 is the counterpart to that. This is also a psalm of repentance, which David wrote evidently at that same time. Let's just rehearse. I just want to look at the first couple of verses. But let's just rehearse what happened. David, after enjoying the marvelous blessings of God, was ensnared in a sin of adultery and uh, a sin that he chose for himself. And then you remember uh, when, when, when it became obvious he wasn't going to be able to get away with a sin because Bathsheba, the woman with, he, with whom he had consorted, uh, became pregnant. He tried to cover his sin. David did, and you remember that finally that attempt wound up in the murder of Uriah. Now, there's some interesting interplays there. We won't get into them, but Uriah, by the way, was one of David's mighty men. Uriah was a man who for many, many years had, uh, had followed David, had given himself to the servant of David, uh, service of David all of those years when David was fleeing from Saul. He surrounded himself with this little cadre of mighty men, warriors, and one of them was Uriah. So David sinned against this man who had, against the wife of this man, and then that sin became so deeply embedded in his heart that he actually murdered this man who had been so loyal to him and actually had protected David. We don't have any, any uh, of the uh, heroics of Uriah personally, but the, the, the mighty men themselves protected David throughout those years. Well, you remember that David hid that sin for somewhere over a year. That is, he contrived to have Uriah killed, and then he married Bathsheba, and then, of course, the baby was born and died. And sometime after that, so at least for a year, David cherished secret sin. Now, let's to be honest with you. We got a court here. We got a lot of, lot, of, you know, lot of intrigue going on. I don't know how secret it was, to be honest with you. But David behaved as if it were secret. He thought it was secret. He, he, he conducted himself as if as if the sin were hidden. And so for somewhere over a year, David cherished in his heart this secret sin. And then, of course, you remember the story of how David uh, was confronted by the prophet Nathan. God dispatched the prophet Nathan to confront David about his sin. Nathan told a little parable about the man who had all the lambs and then the little ewe lamb of his neighbor was stolen. And David became enraged, so typical of people who are, who are involved in sin. They can't stand the next person's sin. They get all enraged over the next person's sin. And uh, David flew into a rage. And, of course, Nathan uh, stuck that bony finger in his face and said, I think Nathan probably had a bony finger. You do what you want. But at any rate, he said, David, thou art the man. And David confessed. He realized that he was taken in his sin, and he confessed his sin. And that confession is, is recounted in Psalm 51. But now look at Psalm 32, verses 1, because he tells us what it's like to get sin out of your life. And by the way, I'm going to read those first two, but you know what? There are only two kinds of sin. I mean, you can, you can deliberate various types of sin and biblical categories of sin. And our president, Dr. MacArthur, uh, uh, delivered last Sunday morning one of the most absolutely magisterial sermons I've ever heard in my life, and I'm still under significant conviction over it, but... Uh, on sins of the mind and what sins of the mind do for you. But in a broad sense, so you can, you can categorize sin in various ways, but, but in, a, in a broad sin, sense or in a practical sense, let's put it that way, really where the rubber hits the road, there are two kinds of sins. There's confessed sin and there's cherished sin. 
There's sin that you have confessed and dealt with biblically. And then there is sin which you are harboring in your heart, in your life. And David is talking about the absolute, inexpressible delights of finally delivering, confessing sin which you have cherished. He says, look at verse uh, verse 1, Psalm 32. David says, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord no longer, is the idea, no longer imputes iniquity, and in, here it is, and in whose spirit there is no guile. In whose spirit there is no deceit. I'm not, li- I'm not living a lie any longer. I'm not, I don't have to pretend to people anymore. I don't have to, I don't have to, I'm, I'm no longer gripped by secret shame when I find myself in a place of worship. When I'm supposed to be focusing on God, I no longer have to deliberately disabuse my mind of my own wickedness and try not to think about how corrupt and wicked my life is. What a delight it is to be able to say, in my spirit, there is no guile. Now, folks, I cherish that for you. I cherish that for me. It is, it is absolutely expedient in the name of integrity, in the name of ministry, in the name of growth, that we be able to say with David, blessed is the man. What a blessedness there is in being able to say, in my spirit there is no God. Now let me just say it real quickly. You know, we say, you know, we got First John in the Bible. And First John tells us that if we say we have no sin, we, 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 we make God a liar. So I think a lot of times our reaction is, well, now look, the Bible says there's going to be sin in my life and there's no use being about careless about this, so I'll pick the ones I like the best, you know, and I'll just have these four or five sins. And I'll cling to these, and God will understand, because then the Bible says, absolutely not. Absolutely not. The sin which you know to be sin and choose to cherish rather than to confess, and to confess means to get it out of your life, is going to, is going to absolutely destroy your joy. It's going to destroy your effectiveness. It's going to destroy your, 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 the possibilities of your growth. It's going to eat you up. And so I want, to, I want us to focus this morning on the effect of cherished sin in the life of a believer. There are three scriptural passages I want to take you to. First of all, I want you to go to Jonah chapter 2. And I'm just going to lay down. matter of fact, you might want to, and I, and I, and I never want to take too much to myself. I, mean, I probably do all the time. But, but uh, maybe you want to write down three simple principles, just three simple principles that I like you to cogitate on, not that you're going to put it in your scrapbook and show it to the grandkids, but just, you know, you'll throw them away later this afternoon, that's fine, but, but just to give yourself some time to think about what I think are three scriptural principles about, about the deal with this issue of cherished sin and, uh, and, and what the Bible demands of us concerning that. Now, first of all, I want to start with Jonah chapter 2 and verse 8. And I have in the King James, now, before I say this, you know the story of Jonah. You know, by the way, you know, especially if you have my survey class, you know that Jonah was a prophet and that he does, in fact, surface elsewhere in the Old Testament. Go back to 2 Kings 14, and and, and Jonah has a message for Jeroboam II, uh, Jeroboam II. So, Jonah was a prophet. As such, he, he was a spokesman for God. And uh, uh, he, he understood who God was. He, uh, he was a genuine prophet of God. Now I, now, I stress that 
because what happens here in Jonah, in the, in the very familiar story of Jonah, is that Jonah does a cosmically stupid thing. I mean, God comes. Now, you understand, Assyria had ruled the eastern Mediterranean world for 400 years. Assyria was unbelievably and disgustingly cruel. They were a vindictive people. They not only subjugated other lands, but they, they tortured and destroyed other peoples. They loved to decorate their homes with human skulls. They, they, they loved to dream up uh, novel tortures that I won't go into. So the point is that, that, that here you are, you're, you're, you're in the northern kingdom, you're, you're Jonah, and God comes to you and says, you know what, in 40 days I'm going to destroy Nineveh. Well, good enough. Best news I've had all day. You know, Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. And uh, Jonah is anxious for the destruction of Assyria. And quite frankly, I think justifiably so. Assyria fully deserved to be destroyed. Morally, they deserve to be destroyed. And, and, but then God went on and said, in 40 days, I'm going to destroy Nineveh unless they repent. And Jonah, I want you to deliver the message and see if they won't repent. And Jonah, because of his, quite frankly, undoubtedly, his contempt for the Assyrians and because of his love for his own country, uh, and quite frankly, because of his love for the character of Yahweh, because the Assyrians had nothing, you know, had nothing but but contempt for Yahweh. You put it all together, and Jonah had perhaps good reason to be anxious for the destruction of Assyria. But now Jonah does something stupid. He flees. The Bible says in Jonah 1:1, from the presence of Yahweh. Now, folks, where do you go to flee from the presence of Yahweh? You know that. You know there's no place you go to, and yet. Jonah knew the same thing. Do you think? Do you think if you'd have stopped Jonah on the on the dock there at Joppa and said, Jonah, wait a minute here. Just let me ask you a question. Do you really think that God, Yahweh, the Lord of Israel, the God who has called you and whom you serve as a prophet, do you think he's a local deity? Do you think that if you flee this little territory right here that God won't be able to find you? Do you think he's unfamiliar with the sea lanes that between here and Tarshish? I don't think Jonah would have thought about it and said, hmm, I think so. No, he wouldn't have done that. He would have said, no, I know better than that. And yet he fled from the presence of Yahweh. And you remember the story of how after he had fled, a great storm came up and he was thrown overboard and swallowed by a whale. And uh, actually as he was in the, uh, the depths of the sea, he cried out. And you have one of the most marvelous passages here. It's a psalm actually in Jonah chapter 2, very briefly. Where, where Jonah cries out in contrition and confession to God. And he describes his experience as he was going down to the bottom of the sea and so on. And then he says in verse 7, When my soul fainted within me, I remembered Yahweh. My prayer came in unto thee, into thine holy temple. By the way, time out. Good indication there of how thoroughly the Old Testament saint was dependent upon the temple worship for his contact with God. Here he is, the bottom of the sea. And in his soul's eye, he transports himself to the temple to do business with God. And this is the confession he makes. Jonah 2, verse 8, he says, I have in the King James, They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. Now, folks, I'd submit to you that that is a powerful verse. That little verse, they that observe lying vanities. Let me tell you about the verse real quickly. The word observe means to cling to. It means to, in spite of all the evidence. See, that's what I say. 
Jonah didn't really believe that by fleeing from from uh, Israel he could escape the presence of Yahweh. But Jonah was so convulsed by his desire to see Assyria and Nineveh destroyed, he was so he was so moved, he was so compelled by what he wanted that he refused to obey Yahweh, and he observed lying vanities. Now, vanity is something that's empty. It means nothing. It's a lie. And yet, Jonah clung to it. And here's the, here's the thing, folks. In so doing, he forsook the mercy that belonged to him. You see that? They forsake their own mercies. God wants to be good to you. He wants to bless you. He wants to smile upon you. He wants to fill your life with the reward, with, with that which he, which he shares with those who live their lives out for Him. But the, the person who observes lying vanities leaves God with no choice but to judge. So they that observe lying vanities forsake their... You know, that's a... You, most of you don't have the King James in front of you, right? I know. Confession is good for the soul. Why don't you... Let's take a minute. Let's take a minute. Now I'm going to do this, but let's take a minute and memorize that verse, shall we? Shall we I, mean, I think it would be good to memorize it in the King James, but you do what you want. Maybe you don't memorize it in the King James. But uh, what is the? who's got the NASB? Read it for me just real loud. 2-8. All right. NASB has those who regard vain idols. Now... The word idols is not there. The word is vanity. That word is used sometimes for idols. And there's a lot of debate among the expositors as whether Jonah... Some people think Jonah's getting after the, the, the guys who threw him overboard. Said, I'm smarter than they are because I worship the real God and they worship these vain idols. I don't think so. I don't think Jonah's worrying about the guys who threw him overboard. He invited them to do it. So the vain idols, I think, misses the point in that it seems to, it seems to point to somebody other than Jonah. But nonetheless... Memorize it however you want. Well, I won't take the time. I was going to lead you through a little memory exercise. Wait, what about? I'm telling you something. You need to, to nail that down in your heart. That the man, the person who observes, who clings to lies, which are only empty, is going to forsake his own mercy. The mercy that God has for him. But now, the point I want to get out of the verse is this. And this is where I want to stop for just a moment. The point I want to get out of the verse is this. That... Jonah confesses there that he observed or clung to, he, 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 he embraced that which was a lie, but the lie was stupid. The lie was not compelling. The lie wasn't even deceptive. The lie was that maybe he could escape from the presence of Yahweh. Now, do you, and I asked you before, do you think Jonah really believed that? Do you think if you'd have given him... Uh, you know, if you'd ask him the question whether or not you could really escape from the president, he would have he would have affirmed that cognitively. He would have said, "I really believe this is a point of my theology that Yahweh lives in Israel and he knows nothing about the sea." You think he would have said that? He's a prophet of God, and yet he confesses that he has observed lying vanities. He has embraced a lie, from which I conclude this, and this is where I'm taking you. This is, this is the first principle I want you to remember. The power... A lie, let's say it this way. A lie is powerful not because it's deceptive, but because it's delicious. Does that make sense to you? A lie is powerful not because it's deceptive, not because it really makes sense. You know, we go through this all the time in the Old Testament, but in the Old Testament, uh, in, in survey, we go through this all the time. 
But the Old Testament, this gets a little gross, forgive me, but at least I'll wake you up here. You know, it's awful early in the semester to be sleepy. Steve said you were sleepy. You know, we're just, it's going to get worse before it gets better, folks. I mean, I don't mean to be the bearer of bad tidings, but if you're all worn out already, why, <laughs> after Saturday night when we're going to be here at the ballgame, you need to take a good, get some good sleep. But anyway, um, we, we go through this Old Testament all the time. Um, you, you have, the, uh, again and again, the Old Testament, you have God getting after Israel for forsaking him in the name of the, 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 the idols of Canaan, particularly the Baalim and the Asherah. And, and, and you read the Old Testament, and these Baalim, you know, Isaiah goes on and on about this. He says, here you got these gods, and you go out and you carve down a tree, and with half the tree you go and you make a fire, and you make bread, and you eat the bread, and the other half you carve a little idol, and you will fall down and worship your idol. What kind of, what kind of God is that? What kind of God is it you made with your own hands? They have no eyes that can see. They have no ears that can hear. They have no hands that can move on your behalf. They have no feet that can bring them to your aid. And yet over here is Yahweh. Has Yahweh proven Himself? I mean, it's Yahweh who delivered them from, uh, from Egypt. It's Yahweh who has, who has, who has uh, uh, you know, brought them into the land. Yahweh has done all of these things for them, and yet they go and forsake Him. The Old Testament, the King James word is they go, and this is the key to the whole thing, they go a-whoring after other gods. And as I say in class again and again, why is that? Very simply because Baal, Baal, the, the, the Baalim and Ashtaroth cult was a fertility cult. And it was a means by which uh, supposedly uh, not only was, was sexual immorality uh, in, uh, approved, not only was it, was it accepted, it was, actually, it was actually enforced upon you. In other words, Baal was supposed to be a male god and Asherah was a female god and supposedly, this is wicked and, and corrupt, but once a year they would come together physically, sexually and uh, give rebirth to the earth. And so the way you would honor those gods was to duplicate their activities. And it was nothing more than, than, than ecclesiastical prostitution. That's all it was. Now, why do I sell that? See, the point is, do you really, does it make sense that there's a female god and there's this male god and that, that once a year they, they, they come together and, 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 and you know, sexually. And it, does that make sense? No. But the point is the power of the lie doesn't lie in the fact that it makes sense, that it's really genuinely deceptive, but it's delicious. Because if I embrace that religion, then I can do exactly as my, as my, as my flesh wants to do. And I want to live my life out for myself. I want to do as I please. And so I look for a religion, and every false religion the man's ever concocted is nothing more than a thin facade for, for making excuses for them to do what they want to do in the first place and supposedly feel good about it. So the point is, and here's where I'm taking you, there are lies which you have believed, and you need to get them out in the open. They only work in the dark. And you have believed, perhaps, that what you want is more important than what God wants for you. You have believed, for, perhaps, that that the world system of values is more, is more credible than, than the Bible system of values. You have, who knows what it is that you believed, but you get that lie out in the open and it won't make any sense. You get it into the light of, of reason in God's Word. It's not going to make any sense. But the reason you believe it is not because it's deceptive, but because it's delicious. That makes sense to you? But Jonah said when you do it, when you embrace what you know to be a lie... When you observe lying vanities, you forsake the mercy that God intends for you. That's a serious thing. 
All right, secondly, I want you to go to Ecclesiastes. Can you find Ecclesiastes quick? Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and verse 11. Three, three principles I'm going to leave you with here. I'm going to have to hurry. First of all, a lie is powerful not because it's deceptive, but because it's delicious. Secondly, can you find, can I find Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and verse 11. A little, little uh, verse nestled away here, and it'll make, I, I, it'll, it'll make as good sense in the NASB. Let me read it to you in the King James. Ecclesiastes 8 and verse 11. This is a powerful verse. It says, because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily. The heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Again, because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, the hearts of the sons of men are fully set in them to do evil. Now, you live in a moral universe where God, for reasons that he explains very carefully in Scripture, does not immediately judge your sin. That is, you can commit a sin, be it a sin of the mind or a sin of action, a sin of omission or a sin of commission. You can commit that sin, and God does not immediately dispatch angels to drop bowling balls on your head or whatever in the world. God doesn't immediately... Now, God tells us that God is not slack. You know, uh, Peter addresses this very, very specifically. Second Peter, he says, God is not slack. He's talking about promises of judgment. God's not careless about his promises of judgment, but he is what? Remember? He is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So you've got a gracious God who gives you opportunity to repent before he judges you, But the besetting sin is to mistake the long-suffering and the kindness of God for carelessness about His promises of judgment. And because sentence against an evil work is not speedily executed, because God does not immediately judge me or you for our wickedness, it is all too easy to think, well, I guess I got away with it. And therefore, we cherish that sin, and that sin begins to have, and, and, and by the way, this is important, the word there that says the heart is fully set in them, it actually means emboldened. It means actually filled, and the idea is filled with courage. And so we get bolder about our sin, and we get our sin, our sin becomes more and more dominant in our lives as time goes by because we mistook God's long-suffering, His kindness, for carelessness. That makes sense to you? Because sin against an evil works not executed speedily. Now, the man the, the heart of fully man the, the, the heart of man is fully set in him to do evil. It's emboldened toward evilness. Now, out of that I want to draw this principle. Here's my second principle, very simply. And that is that the sin which entices you today will enslave you tomorrow. Sin which entices you today is going to enslave you tomorrow. Now, I want you to take your Bibles, and I'm going to have to really hurry on this, and I've asked the, the Joel and his team to help me with this, but in 2 Samuel chapter 18, 1 Samuel, do we take your Bible and go to 1 Samuel 18? If I've lost you, come back to me, because this is so important. 1 Samuel 18, and I'm going to tell you six stories. There are six stories in a row here, right in this narrative, and I'm telling you something. Let me just give you a, a word of testimony here, and I don't know if this will make any sense to you, but when I was in seminary, when I was, I don't know, 
23, 24, whatever, in seminary, took a class in ethics, and I was assigned a reading. And the reading was called The Progress of Sin in the Human Consciousness. It was in a a book on ethics by a man named Peter Martinson. And uh, I swear, I I thought the guy had been following me around. I mean, there were sins in my life, and uh, he described how, as I just said to you, sin which only entices you today enslaves you in the passage of time. And it was a major turning point in my life when I read that and began to realize what that sin which I tolerated was doing to my life. And how all I had to do was take the biblical pattern and extrapolate it not too far into the future. And I was going to be so thoroughly enslaved to that sin if I didn't turn now that, that there perhaps be no hope in this life. Because, you see, sin is not dormant. Sin is not... Sin will never... Sin in your life will never maintain any sort of status quo. It will more and more enslave your life. I promise you that. It is a major principle that you need to understand with regard to your own life, with regard to counseling. People come and they say, well, you know, there's this sin in my life, this, this, this addiction is the popular word is today, and we assume that a guy just got up one morning and just found himself all of a sudden compelled to do these wicked things. Baloney, balderdash, that's foolishness. It's biblical claptrap, that idea that you can just suddenly find yourself. There has been a history. There has and, and sin, which was only enticing at one time, has come to the place where it absolutely enslaves. And it's a fearful thing. And you need to come to grips with what cherry sin is going to do in your life. And I, some years after that, I got, I got to study in 1 Samuel, and I came to this, this passage, and it's an Testament. You know him well. His name was King Saul. King Saul was chosen by God, although God chose him as the, as, as the, people that, the one that the people would have chosen. But anyway, King Saul was chosen to be the first king of Israel. He did well. God imbued him with the, the Spirit of God and, and enabled him to do above his natural capacities. But Saul became fascinated with himself. He, became, he got a fixation on himself. He lost interest in serving God. And therefore, the Spirit was taken from him. And you remember the story in 1 Samuel 15. Uh, Dr. MacArthur preached on it, I guess, uh, I'm trying to remember where. I'm sorting all these uh, MacArthur sermons out. But uh, it was in church, so you weren't there. But uh, maybe some. But... Uh, uh, the Agag story, the Agag and the Amalekites, where, where Saul uh, refused to slay Agag and the Amalekites. And uh, therefore God said, all right, I'm going to take the kingdom from you and give it to another, a neighbor of yours, a man who is better than you. Now, that was God's promise. And you can count on it that from that time forward, Saul began to wonder who that man was. Now, you remember the story of how after Saul's, the spirit was taken from him, by reason of Saul's wickedness, there was a... There was a uh, an evil spirit that came upon him. And after that evil spirit came upon him, he was so troubled that many times that some of his courtiers went out and found a young man, a shepherd boy, who was very accomplished on the harp and brought him in. And, and, and that young boy, you know to be David, could play the harp and soothe the heart of Saul. Well, as time went by, as a matter of fact, look at 1 Samuel 18. 1 Samuel 18 and verse uh, 5, 1 Samuel 17, by the way, is that very familiar story of David and Goliath. And so David has proven himself in Goliath, the Goliath account. And then verse 5, it says, David went out. This is just sort of a summary of David's uh, a service for Saul. David was a tremendous, he was loyal to Saul. But uh, verse 5, it says, David went out whithersoever Saul sent him. He behaved himself wisely. So Saul sent him over the men of war. Before he was just a man, just a young boy to play the harp, but he does so well. 
he actually gives him a command in the army. He was accepted in the sight of all the people and the sight of Saul's servants. Pretty soon, David had almost as much authority as Saul. That's what it means there when it says he is accepted in the sight of Saul's servants. When Saul said, go do so-and-so, the servant did it. When David said, go do so-and-so, the servant did it. It was as if Saul had said it. That's how important Saul became. And it says, verse 6, now this is a turning point of Saul's life. It says, it came to pass as they came, when David was returned from after, long after actually the slaughter of the Philistine, that the women came out of all cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with, with uh, tabrets, joy, instruments of music. And the women answered, and this is a little song. You remember this. These women would sing this little song there in verse eight, uh, 7. Saul hath slain his, slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Now, by the way, you need to understand, they didn't mean anything untoward by that. They, they weren't getting after Saul. They were saying, it was as if they were saying this, isn't God good? He gave us Saul, and Saul was a mighty warrior, and now he's given David, and David's an even greater. Isn't God good? Saul has slain his thousands, David his ten thousands. It's just Hebrew poetry. But when Saul heard it, he said to himself, who, who? As a matter of fact, look at verse 8. Saul was upset, very wroth, the saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed unto David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed the thousands. And then I see him, if you don't mind, you know, sort of rubbing his whiskered chin and saying, hmm, what can he have more but the kingdom? Which is to say, this is the one. God promised me, God told me, he warned me that he was going to choose somebody else. And therefore, verse 9 says, Saul eyed David from that day and forward. Now, what that means is, for the rest of his life, Saul was intent on murdering David. But, here, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. The point is, what happens is, what I want you to see in the next two chapters here, two and a half chapters, is the frightful progress of sin in the life of Saul. Saul cherished this. Now, what, look, folks, what, was Saul, what should Saul have done? He should have confessed his sin, said, God, you're, you're more important than I. Your will is more important than mine. By the way, what was Saul's son's name? Jonathan. Remember Jonathan? One of the greatest heroes of the Old Testament. That's exactly what Jonathan did. And the interesting thing is, that is what Jonathan did is just say, fine. If that's what God wants, you never hear Jonathan complaining. And he's the one who really paid the price. He should have been the next king. And it was by reason of his father's sin that he, Jonathan, was deprived of the throne. But you don't hear Jonathan whining. In one of the most marvelous passages of the Old Testament, you have Jonathan going to David and confessing that he, David, is going to be the next king and asking Jonathan asked David to protect his, Jonathan's, offspring. That's why Mephibosheth later on. So the point is the proper response that God should have and could have and did expect from Saul was to say, okay, I've sinned. I confess my sin. You've decided to remove me and my family from the throne and put another? Fine, that's up to you. But that's not what, they, what Saul does. What he does is he cherishes in his heart a sin of hatred toward the one who has been chosen by God. Now, what I want you to see, and I've got to go quickly here, but what I want you to see is six stories. They're, they're one right after the other in the narrative here. And I believe that the reason Samuel gives them to us so carefully here is because they do, in fact, chart, as it says here, the progressive control of cherished sin in Saul's life. So notice, first of all, if you will, in chapter 18, verses 10 and 11, you have what I call a sudden desire. First of all, it's just a sudden thing. Now, I'm going to do, i got it more quickly. Look at verse 10. It came to pass on the morrow that the evil spirit from God came upon Saul, and he prophesied in the midst of his house. Now, what that means is he became maniacal. 
And I won't get into why he used the word prophesy, but, but the point is he began to sing and carry on, and it was, it was a little strange. And as it says there, it was a, a sudden desire comes upon him. Look at verse 11. It says, oh, I'm sorry, verse 10. It says, David played with his hand, as at other times, and there was a javelin in Saul's hand. Now, in the ancient, in the ancient uh, Israelite court, uh, a javelin, which is a spear, was the symbol of authority. It was sort of like a scepter, the kingly symbol. They didn't have crowns. Evidently, what they had was this, this kingly javelin. So he had this spear that was at his hand, and it says, and actually, I have in verse 11, Saul cast the javelin. The Hebrew would be just as well read, he, he brandished the javelin. He took it and went like he was going to throw it. Now, you can take it either way, but the fact that David is so ready to later on to come back in is, I think, indication that it does, in fact, mean brandish. But what I want you to catch is, this must have taken Saul by desire. Uh, I'm sorry, by, sorry, by surprise. He, he must have been a little surprised. What have I done? You almost killed David. How could I explain that? So the point is, he's, he's been harboring a wicked spirit. Now he's alone with David. What's David doing? He's ministering to Saul. He's trying to soothe him. And, and this, this desire for David's life all of a sudden springs in up in Saul. And, and like I say, I think Saul was probably a little surprised by, what have I done? Oh, let's just make the application real quickly. Here is some, is some wicked thing you, you, you tolerate in your life, some wicked thoughts, some wicked desire, some wicked uh, attitude. And all of a sudden, some, something pops into your life. You know, you, you have an opportunity. I remember when I was uh, living in Minnesota, I, uh, I went to an eye doctor. And uh, he had this nurse who was just a shrew. That's a good word, isn't it? She was a shrew. And, uh, and the woman drove me nuts. And the doctor was no better than the nurse, by the way, but that's not the story. But at any rate, uh, I never forget, I'm sitting, this is a little tiny town. Norman Rockwell invented this town in southern Minnesota. And I'm sitting at, at one of the three stoplights in town. And, uh, and I'm just sitting there waiting for the light to change. And this woman walks right in front of my car. I just thought to myself, I could step on the gas and get rid of that woman. I thought, <laughs> and I, I really didn't have any murders desired, but I still remember thinking, what a thought. I mean, what a thought to even think. I mean, it just sneaked up on me. And I think sometimes you've got to deal with it. And thank the Lord, as far as I know, the woman's still healthy and strong, and I didn't have anything to do with it. But, but uh, you know what I mean? You just you harbor a spirit. I really was mad at that woman. I, that just came to me. It may be kind of silly, but I, I really was mad at that woman. And uh, all of a sudden, there she's in front of me, and I, and, I, and I really had a wicked thought. But it doesn't stop there. Go a little further. Uh, notice, secondly, you have, go to verses uh, uh, 12 to 30. Now, I, I haven't got time to read these. But secondly, you have a secret desire. In other words, first of all, it's a sudden desire. It just sneaks up on him, taken by surprise. Secondly, in verses uh, uh, 12 to 30, you have a, uh, a secret desire. And what happens is this. It says in... Uh, let me just tell you the story. I won't even read it to you. What happened is Saul got to thinking, how could I get rid of this man David? And he was very careful to keep it secret. And the story is this. He, he thought to himself, I know what I'll do. I'll put him in charge of the army that is fighting the Philistines because he'll probably die in battle. Look at the end of verse 17. Here's what Saul is thinking. Saul said, let not my hand be upon him. Let the hand of the Philistines be upon him. I won't kill him. I'll contrive to get him killed by the Philistines. And what happened is David went out and he was victorious. He came back, had great victories over the Philistines. So Saul said, well, that isn't going to work. So he came up with another idea. And he said, you know, I've got this daughter and uh, she is ready to be wed. 
and it would be an honorable thing to be married to the king's daughter. So, David, I will give her to you if you will go out and single-handedly slay a hundred Philistines and bring me back some rather gruesome evidence thereof. Well, evidence that really fits very, very well in, in Jewish theology. But at any rate, uh, what happens is uh, David goes out. Actually, what happens is that that daughter marries somebody else. So Saul thinks, oh, nuts, that didn't work either. But then his second daughter indicates she's got interest in David. So, so he says, okay, I'll give you my second daughter, Michelle or Michael, however you like to say it. And uh, so, so he does. And, and David goes out and he actually comes back with 200, evidence of 200 Philistine deaths. So he, he has slain twice as many as was demanded. And so, as you remember, they were, they, were, they were married. Now, all I want you to catch out of this is this. Stay with me on this. The fact of the matter is that at this point, Saul is, is doing everything he can to keep his wicked desire secret. Now, folks, I'm going to suggest to you that there are those of us this morning who are cherishing, carefully cherishing known sin, and this is about where we are. We're doing everything we can to keep it secret. We're still sensitive to the mores and the morals that are involved, and we don't want to. We don't want it to become public. We want to maintain a reputation, perhaps, especially in this setting, of some level of spiritual maturity and godliness. And so we're working hard to keep it secret. But I'm telling you, the sin doesn't stop there. Because go to the next uh, passage in chapter 19. You have what I call a surpassing desire a surpassing desire. And look at it in chapter 19. I'll tell it to you very quickly. What happens is Jonathan, and you've got to understand what's going on here because they, uh, Saul has been troubled by this evil spirit. And so, and so he's been acting a bit irrationally anyway. And Jonathan and David, who are dear friends, undoubtedly sat together and said, what is wrong with King Saul? What's wrong with your dad, Jonathan? Well, you know, he's under a lot of pressure and he's a lot of, you know, who knows what, and the Philistines are troubling him. So Jonathan actually goes to his father. Jonathan is one of the single most remarkable men in the Old Testament. And, and Jonathan goes to, to Saul, and he sits down with Saul, his father, and really balls him out and says, you know, David is your friend. Look at verse 4. Jonathan spake good of David unto Saul, his father. And he said unto him, let not the king sin against his servant, against David. He has not sinned against you. His works have been to, to thee were very good. In other words, everything he's done has been with you in mind. And verse 5, he put his life in, hand, in his hand. He slew the Philistine. The Lord wrought a great salvation. You saw it and did rejoice. Why do you sin against David, uh, against innocent blood, to slay David without a cause? Now, here's what I want you to catch. This is so important. Look at verse 6. Saul hearkened unto the voice of Jonathan. And Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be slain. And then what happens is the evil spirit comes upon him. There's another war. David goes out and does well and uh, undoubtedly began to be praised again by, by the people and by the women. And look at verse 9. The evil spirit from the Lord was upon Saul as he sat in his house with his javelin. David played the hand, with his hand. And Saul sought to smite David to the wall with the javelin. But David slipped away out of Saul's presence. Do you see what's happened here? Stay with me on this, folks. Do you see what happened here? Somebody closer to, Jonathan, to, David, to somebody closer to Saul than anybody else in the world found out his sin, confronted him about it, and, 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 and Saul said, you're right, you're right. It's wicked. And he took a holy oath, and I believe he meant every word of it. 
He said, as the Lord lives, this is stupid, this is wicked, I'm not going to do it anymore. The man is going to live, I'm not going to pursue David. But the next time he had the opportunity, he tried to smite him to the wall. Now that's serious stuff. Is there a sin in your life and somebody really close to you, somebody who knows you perhaps or anybody else, has sat you down and, and, and challenged you about that sin? Maybe, maybe it wasn't even somebody. Maybe you just sat in a, in a sermon, in a, in a service somewhere, and somebody preached a sermon, and, and God put His finger on your sin, and you said, it's, you're wrong. It's wrong. I know it. I'm going to turn from it. But within days, you were right back in the same thing. Has that happened to you? That's dangerous. You haven't dealt biblically with your sin. The sin is beginning to enslave you to where... That's what I mean by surpassing... You know what's right. You've been confronted with what's right, and yet you cling to your sin. You're treading on dangerous ground. That's what I'm telling you. You need to deal biblically with your sin. Because if you've come to that spot where somebody confronts you and God puts His finger on that specific sin, and you say, I know it's wrong, I'm horrified by it, you need to deal with it. You need to deal. See, Saul didn't deal biblically with it. Folks, I'm going to tell you something right now, a word of hope. The gospel is big enough to take care of any sin in your life. The gospel, the power of God, the graces that God has given us, there is no excuse. If there's any sin which you've cherished, God can help you deal. God can deal with that sin. I'm going to come to that. So I don't want to be discouraged, but I'm saying if you have not dealt biblically, and in fact you're still involved in the same sin, it is a horribly dangerous thing. I've got to be done. Let me go to the third one, fourth one, I'm sorry. Chapter 19, verses 11 to 17, you have what I call a shameless desire. Shameless in the sense the story is simply this. Now Saul calls in some of his servants, and he says, Look, I'm tired of this. I want to be rid of David. David's married to my daughter. I want you to go and stand at his house, and as soon as he comes out, just slay him. And I'll make up an excuse later on. And, of course, his daughter, uh, Michael, who is David's husband, knows of it, and she contrives to have him flee over the wall and then, and then makes like he's in bed and says he's sick. And uh, finally they come in. And it's interesting, by the way, uh, in, ch- in chapter... Well, I won't go back to it, but uh, when Saul finds out what Michael has done to help David, he becomes enraged, and Michael has to lie and say, well, uh, David told me he'd kill me if, he, if, if I gave him away. But the fact of the matter is, when I say surpassing, as it says there, he makes it deliberate. See, the thing is, now it's deliberate, it's premeditated, and he's getting other people... He's, it's shameless now. In other words, he's not trying to hide it. He's getting people involved in it. Sin is beginning to enslave. He used to be so sensitive, he never, he'd do everything he could to keep it secret. He tried to get the Philistines. Now he's so enslaved to this sin that he's willing to be public about it. All right, the fifth thing. Got to hurry. The fifth thing is what I call a searing desire. A desire is in chapter 19, verses 18 to 24. What happens there is that this is really an amazing thing. This is an amazing thing. But what happens? By the way, I'm taking the word searing from the King James of... Uh, of First uh, Timothy 4, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. And the word sear in the Greek is cauterize. Like when you take... In the ancient world, when they would, when they would for instance, in warfare, when they would be wounded, they would take a, a, a hot sword and they would moisten a man's arm if there was a wound and put it on there real quickly and it would deaden the nerves in so they could stitch it up. And so to cauterize is to deaden the nerve ends. So you can't feel anything anymore, and you can ca- you can cauterize your conscience by clinging to sin, and that's exactly what happens. Uh, real quickly, what happens is David flees to Samuel, 
And Saul sends some soldiers to get David. And every time the soldiers get near Ramah, the little village where Samuel lives, the Spirit of God intervenes and they fall down and begin to prophesy. They begin to sing psalms and so on. They can't go any further. They're, 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 you know, And they get up and they go home and they say, Saul, we can't do it. Every time we get close, God moves in. And, God, and, and Saul says, go again. He says, and finally, Saul says, I'll do it. And Saul goes... And as soon as he gets close to Ramah, this is that famous story where the Spirit of God comes upon him, and he's got nothing to do with his salvation, by the way, at this point. The Spirit of God just knocks him over, and he strips off all his clothes, and he lays there naked, naked all night long, prophesying to God, singing psalms in the buff. <laughs> now, the point is, what's going on here? God is shaming Saul. But the, you see, what I want you to catch is, the sin has gotten so thoroughly a hold of Saul that he really thinks he can outduel God. After God gives them all these warnings, all these soldiers go. They can't do it. Saul says, "I'm going to go, and I'm going to, con- I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to have a contest with God." And I, now that's stupid. That's cosmically, morally stupid. How would he get there? Cherished sin. Now you're not there yet. You're not there yet. But I'm telling you, you don't deal with your sin. You're headed there. That's the message I got for you. Because the sin that only entices today enslaves tomorrow. That's what I'm saying. The final thing, number six. Is what I call a sovereign desire. And I won't tell you the whole story. It's in chapter 20. The whole of chapter 20 is given over to this. What happens is Jonathan and David make this big plan to try and determine whether Saul is as dangerous as he seems. And, uh, uh, well, what happens very simply, he says, we'll have, a, we'll have a dinner or we'll have a feast and David's supposed to be there. And Jonathan says, I'll make excuses for you and we'll be able to tell by the way our, my father reacts as to whether he's really intent on killing you. And so uh, they do that. And notice verse 30. When Jonathan tells Saul that David is not at the feast, it says, verse 30, Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said unto him, Thou son of the perverse, rebellious woman, translate that into vernacular, do not I know that thou hast chosen the son of Jesse to thine own confusion? See the point? What he's saying is, Jonathan, you should be the next king, and this man's going to be the next king. Do you realize what you're doing? And then he says, verse 31, As long as the son of Jesse lives on the ground, thou shalt not be established, nor thy kingdom. Wherefore now send and fetch him unto thee. He shall surely die. And Jonathan answered and said, I'm not going to do that. And look at verse 33. Saul cast a javelin at Jonathan. You see, you read stories about a man, Billy Sunday, so given to drink that he'll go out and take the money for the baby food, you know, for the formula for his baby, spend it for liquor. How can that be? That's exactly what you got here. In other words, you're so committed to your sin that it eclipses natural affections. He tries to put to death his own son because he's so enslaved by his sin. That's where sin is going to take you. So I'm saying to you. I mean, you're a long way from that. And here we are talking about integrity and, and, and so on. But I'm telling you, sin will not remain static in your life. And you know that. And if there's a sin in your life, you can chart, you can put yourself on this schematic somewhere. I'm guessing. You can, you can tell me, you can be honest with yourself, you can tell yourself where you are on this. And I'm telling you, if you don't do something about it, because a man, a sentence against an, a, 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 an evil act is not executed speedily, man gets bolder and bolder about his sin. And his heart is fully set in him to do evil, and pretty soon the sin which only enticed begins to enslave. Go to Psalm 32, and I'm done. I'm sorry I'm late, and... I'm so ashamed of myself. Psalm 32. <clears throat> Third principle, and I, this is, I, don't, I don't claim that this is complete. This is where we started here in Psalm 32. But notice what David says in verse 3. Just one verse. Uh, verse 5, I'm sorry. Just one verse. Psalm 32 and verse 5. 
By the way, in verses 3 and 4, he tells us what it was like to be living with cherished sin. My bones waxed old through my roaring all the days along. I just groaned. I was miserable. My, my moisture was dried up as the drought of summer. That's what life was like. But then he says in verse 5, I acknowledged my sin unto thee. Mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. What I want you to catch is the four times in that verse where he says it's my sin. No excuses. And folks, the, fourth principle, the third principle is simply this, that you have got to acknowledge, now we go back to yesterday, your absolute dependence or Monday, your, 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 your helplessness before God. You are the problem. You are not the solution. Paul said this to the Galatians. And what I'm seeing there is, is, is David. Look at Psalm 9 real quickly. It's not very far. We can be done here. Psalm 9, the ninth psalm. Some couple of marvelous verses I came across just a little while ago. And, and uh, Psalm 9, verses 15 and 16. <clears throat> in the King James, you have in the, in the Nazbe the nations. But it actually it means the, the pagans, the heathen. The heathen are sunk down in the pit that they made. In the net which they hid is their own foot taken. Your sin is your fault. And the third principle is simply this, that the first step to victory over the sin which enslaves you is to acknowledge that you forged the chains. That it's your choice. And therefore, to look to yourself is absolute foolishness. And that's what Paul said, Galatians 3, Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, can you be made perfect, perfect by the flesh? Colossians 2 and verse 6, a verse that just animates me. Paul said, as ye have received the Christ Jesus the Lord, what? So walk ye in him. In the same manner, kathos, in the same manner walk ye in him. Folks, you're here this morning as a believer. That's because at some time in your life you came to the end of yourself. You acknowledged that there was absolutely nothing you could do to save yourself. There was absolutely nothing you could bring to the bargain that you were going to, to, to give up trying to do anything for yourself and you were going to cast yourself in the arms of the only one who could do anything for you, and that is Jesus your Savior. Amen? As you have, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him. That is... You are, you are just as dependent upon Him to give you deliverance from your sin, it just as dependent to, to enable you to grow and to walk as you were to, to be saved in the first place. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, I confess my sin. I'm the sinner. I forged the chains. What I need to do is get myself out of the way, look to Christ, obey what He tells me, obey what He demands of me in, this, in, 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 in all of its parts. Augustine, St. Augustine gave a testimony concerning how he came to Christ. He said, for a long time I prayed this prayer. Lord, forgive me for my sins, but not now. He wanted to enjoy his sins for a time, so that didn't work. Then he said, I prayed this prayer. Lord, forgive me for most of my sins except for these. And that didn't work either. And when he's willing to say, Lord, forgive me for all of my sins, take them all away, I, re I forsake all all of them, right now, God worked in his life. Amen? So three simple things. Sin, a lie is powerful, not because it's deceitful, because it's delicious. Not because it's deceptive and really foolish, because it's delicious. Secondly, the, the uh, I forgot my second one. Uh, 
The lie which entices you today is going to enslave you tomorrow. You need to turn from it. But the first step is to acknowledge that you forged the change. You've got to get out of the way. You've got to allow God to work in your life. Let's have a word of prayer. Thank you, Father, for your love to us, for the attention of these folks. And, Father, I pray that your spirit might work mightily in our lives. We confess that we belong to you. Your Son has given Himself. We have been bought by His blood. We are bought with an infinite price. Jesus died a death we never could have died and paid a price we never could have paid, and therefore we belong to You. We rejoice in all of that. We pray that You might help us to deal honestly and finally with the sin that so easily besets us. We'll thank You for it in Christ's name. Amen.